0: Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today my guest is Fleur MacDonald. Born and bred in Ururu, in mid-north of South Australia. Fleur was daughter of a fuel distributor who covered a quarter of Australia. And so she spent many of her early years in a truck with her dad, driving through small rural towns to make deliveries. Fleur studied agribusiness at college and undertook a practical on a property near the town of Esperance where she still lives today. Fleur's passion for writing didn't come to the fore until sleep deprived and just coping with the demands of a young child with autism she decided to try and write kid stories for her son to help with concentration. From there Fleur went on to write her first novel Red Dust which in 2009 was the highest selling novel for a debut author and was later shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Award as Newcomer Author. Since then, she's gone from strength to strength, releasing 12 novels as well as children's books, and recently released her detective novel, Fool's Gold. Her stories are set in rural Australia and feature strong female characters and solid, no-nonsense countrymen. Fleur's characters are inspired by the tough, complex and genuine people she meets during her lifetime living in remote Australia. She also has a blog, Bush Lanterns, which features a variety of impressive ladies in rural communities. Fleur, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Bryn. How are
0: cool. you? I'm very well. <laughs> and uh, here we are in the McCure restaurant. Yes, So, so there's um, probably a bit of background noise. Yes, <laughs> there is, which is a bit different for some of my uh, for some of our listeners. So um, one of the questions I always ask my guests right at the start, because it is called WA Real is um, your journey to Western Australia because obviously How I got here. Yeah, how you grew up <laughs> in South Australia. Well, before we do that, when you were growing up, how did you how was Western Australia perceived? By yourself and those around you
1: it was just a long way away it was funny though because I never really gave any thought about ending up over here um so when I was in the truck with dad we would go up through Alice Springs and out to Warburton so dad would cart fuel all the way out to Warburton and Giles and Giles weather station so I spent a little bit of time in WA but I never had given really any thought to ever living here that was never in my in my plan Right, so, um but I did have a little bit of a need as I was a teenager, a particularly horrible, selfish teenager, right. to get away from my family because my dad had a fairly well everywhere everywhere I went, everybody knew my dad, and I just didn't like that i had a I had a need to just Not disassociate myself, but just to be me, just to be Fleur, and that's all I ever really wanted to be. So WA sort of gave me that opportunity to do that when I came over here as a very young 19 year old.
0: Yeah, I can certainly resonate with that. Um, I grew up in a a town where everybody knew my dad and my granddad and stuff like that. And yeah, coming to Western Australia, such a remote place, gives you the opportunity to be the real person you want to be. It
1: was a little bit frightening when you're working way down the south of South Australia. And like I was 18, I was allowed to be in the pub and have a rip. And the next morning I'd get a phone call from Dad going, what were you doing last night? (laughs) It's like, what? What? (laughs) How did you know? (laughs) So just because so many people knew Dad and and because the fuel like Dad was never shy in plastering his name all over the tankers or anything. So, you know, you'd see these trucks with Parnell written all over it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was, it was hard to just be, uh, just to be an individual. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: So you, you came here with your course in agribusiness.
1: So, um, I went to Marcus Oldham Farm Management College and the, I was going to do the farm management course and the prerequisites for that was I had to have two years out working in the field. Um, they really like you to get rid of your rashiness and your, um, and your fun times, which is when you go to agricultural college, that's just never going to happen. You know? <laughs> like, so I had to do two years working on a farm. So I did one year down working in the south of South Australia at a place called um, Meningi for um, for uh, the Gunner family down there. And then I did one uh, another 12 months over here in Esperance on, um, for the White family. And um, yeah, so I got the job with the White family through a friend of mine in South Australia. And... Mm-hmm. Um, they just said, look, he's looking for somebody to, he, he just bought 4,000 acres, so they were looking for somebody to give them a bit of a hand. And so Dad and I packed up my dog and my car and we drove across Nullarbor, and I landed here and I haven't sort of left since. So, which is pretty normal for people turning up in Esperance. They don't like to leave once they've been over. Yeah, I've
0: heard this. What, what is it about Esperance that keeps you there?
1: Um, I think it's the beaches and the, you couldn't ever say the weather because it's pretty windy. <laughs> but I think it's the beaches and, and just the fact that it's really beautiful and laid back and everybody's lovely and I don't know, it just seems to grab you. And it had to work pretty hard to grab me because I'm very much a, um, northern, northern girl, red, red dirt, red dust type thing. That's yes. where I really love. Um, but yeah, anyway, I stayed. So. You've been there for 20 years? 25, I think now. Mm. wow. Yeah,
0: there you go. Yeah, so obviously, you've made a, uh, a career and a living out of uh, writing and telling great stories. Where does that come from in your journey? Where does that come from? Is it something from in yourself, or is uh, it?
1: well, I think I come from a long line of storytellers. My dad was a great, or still is a great storyteller. You know, you start off with tiny, tiny stories, a bit like the one that got away type, end up massive, massive stories. Um, so, and my nana used to sit, um, she was a bit incapacitated, and she would sit um, in front of her fire and she would have what we used to call the storytelling chair, which is like an old antique smoker's boy. So we'd all go, all of us grandkids would go and sit there and, and she would just tell us these amazing stories. Just, you know, how they, they used to be able to make up stories, you know, Back when I was growing up, we don't—I don't think anybody really does it now. Um, but you make up these stories, and, and she would tell us about spindles and his pet goanna that would all that they'd walk down the creek, and they would have adventures down these big creeks out of Alice Springs, which is where my auntie and uncle live. So you know, we hear all the—I'd hear all these stories. And I think it just—and then one day, Dad brought me home a book. It was the first book I ever remember getting, and it was the famous Five. Um, the first book in the Famous Five series, which I think is something, something to do with Treasure Island, Five on Treasure Island or whatever yeah. it is. And um, I was just absolutely, I always loved reading, but I was absolutely stolen by then. But I never gave any you know, thought to be, becoming a professional writer. That, wasn't, that was never, I wanted to go farming and that was all I ever wanted to do. I loved reading and I always yeah. wrote. I always was scratching away at something. But they were mostly plagiarisms of Ayn Rand or you know the yeah. boarding school stories and all that sort of stuff. So yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's interesting when you when you talk about you know like your dad and your grandmother telling stories and you know without TV and yeah and internet and things like that, the creativity has to come from within.
1: Yeah, my daughter um, went and babysat or nannied for my sister, who's um, a farmer in South Australia, last year. I think it was, and at five o'clock every night when she was putting the kids to bed, she would ring me, and I would tell my niece and nephew like a story. And I, um, yeah, again, I probably use Nana's tales of of this pet goanna that Spindles used to have, but you know, then you put it into context that they understand. So you know my nephew knows that there's a header going around and around out there and Dad's driving it and and the grain goes to the silo. So, well, what happens if the header breaks down and they can't fix it? So the goanna tends to come along and then they, you know, run off into the clouds somewhere. It sounds really stupid, but the kids loved it. So So there
0: you go. Tell me a bit more about your journey into becoming a writer.
1: So um, I started seriously in about 2000 and so my son was born got two children um, Rochelle was born in 2001 uh, 2000 Hayden was born in 2001 and pretty much within the first 18 months of Hayden being born I knew that there was a problem with him yeah. um, and we got to kindy age and the attention span was pretty average so I started to write these little kid stories about the things that he knew so you know pet sheep, the dogs, cattle in the yards, all that sort of stuff. Living on a farm, there's like so many things that you can draw on. Yeah. So I started writing them. And um, then mum and dad had given me, when I first left school, a riding course that I had a lifetime to finish. So I'd gone back and started to be... You said
0: a lifetime... To finish. Mm, okay. Which I think
1: is crazy because, you know, so uh, if I turned up now, I could still do this writing course that they gave me when I was 18. I'm now right. 44. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was all a bit. So I, I, I decided that I was going to start this writing course uh, again and um, my tutor said to me that I had the ability to tell really good stories. I was a storyteller. Um, so I started to write Red Dust. And I came to Perth there at one stage, Hayden had to go and see a paediatrician, mm. and I organised to see a um, an agent that was up here. And she said to me, she read through everything that I'd written, and she said, look, I'm happy to take your kids' books on, but I'm not going to take Red Dust on because you can't write for shit, basically, was All what right. she said. <laughs> <All> right, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, shit. Um, so she took the kids' books that I'd written, and um, about... Two years later, she rang me and she said, "I can't do anything. I'm just going to give you everything back." But by that stage, I had a contract with Alan and Unwin to for them to publish Red Dust, and I had started Blue Skies. So she really read that wrong because it took 14 years to get the kids' books published, whereas you know, probably 12 months later, after I'd been to see her, um, Alan and Unwin had made me an offer for Red Dust. So that was sort of how it all started. How did that come about? Alan Dunmer. So uh, I'd written <laughs> – anyone that's listening to this, please write your whole manuscript to begin with. Like, don't just write a third of it <laughs> and hand it in, you know, because that's what I did. And normally they would ask for an entire, like by the time that they've um, read the first little bit. So I submitted my um, manuscript, my three chapters – no, it was a chapter and a synopsis to the Friday Pitch Day, which yeah. is where you can – just put your first chapter synopsis in and a publisher will read it and then if they get back to you within two weeks and you have an opportunity to go a little bit further, whether or not they sign you is a different yeah. matter, but they, they are interested. So... The first time I put it in, they came back and they just, Louise said to me, look, your writing's really strong and commercial, but it's not what we're looking for. So Alan and I had never ever published a book like Red Dust. So, um, they weren't looking for anything like that, but it was backing onto the success of, um, Rachel Treasure's book Gillaroo, which had gone on to sell like bucket loads. Yeah. Um, so then I decided that I'd, I didn't know the rules and I didn't understand the rules and I just did what I wanted it's to do. It stood in your favour. Maybe it did because I resubmitted it to, to Alan and one. and um, that time um, Louise came back to me and I I had been working, I would been crutching, I think I'd had two weeks straight in the sheepyards, yards and I had you know mounds of washing and yeah everything and it was my first day back home again and um, this woman rings me up and she goes, Hi, it's Louise and I'm going, Hi. Who's Louise? And then she said who she was and what she wanted, and she wanted to take the first three chapters of Red Dust to the acquisitions meeting. So she took it home, edited it, and then took it into the acquisitions meeting. And the next day she rang me and said that uh, she was offering a contract for the book. So she bought that book on three chapters, which is just completely unheard of, and it had come up through the slush pile. So, you know, I was just in the right spot at the right time. There is so much luck involved in publishing. Yeah. Um, so right spot, right time. Not necessarily that I'm actually good at it, but, you know, the fact that I was there, they had they could see this success that Rachel had had with Gillaroo, um, and they were prepared to take a bit of a risk. Um, and they did, and, well, like you said in your intro, Red Dust was the highest-selling book for a debut author in 2009. So, What was was that like,
0: you know, your first book and then your first contract? Yeah. What was it like even submitting it? Was it like, oh, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Or did you say... I'll just
1: do it. Well, I think mum and dad always raised me to believe that if I worked hard enough, I could achieve anything. Like, I can't be a brain surgeon. Like, let's be realistic about what I can achieve. Um, But, you know, I was, um, I really felt, I was naive enough not to give it too much thought that I could fail. So I just put it in and thought, oh, well, we'll see how we go. Most authors will have a a wall full of rejection letters that, you know, they could wallpaper their walls with, but I think I had two. And nice. they were to do with my kids' books, not anything else. Yeah. So, oh, and they were mostly from agents. When I tried to attract an agent, um, with with Red Dust. Oh no, it was after Red Dust I tried to look for an agent. Um, and as that, and it ended up that my publisher Louise gave me an introduction to the agent that I've got now. Um, after we'd already done a two book contract, so Gabby only came on board for the third book onwards, and I wouldn't be without her now. Like, she she is just awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just one of those bizarre things. I thought, oh well, I'll give it a go. You know, I've got nothing to lose. And if you
0: work hard, why not? Yeah, yeah. And then, and I love
1: playing with sentences, and and book, and and that was what I would do. Like I would spread all my pages out on the kitchen table, and I would rework things. And and um, I work differently now, but um, you know, I loved working with words, uh, and I still and writing and farming are two really opposite type um careers yeah. because you know farming's practical and you've got to have common sense whereas writing's you know you're sort Creative, of all, yeah you're no, away with the fairies no right wrong
0: you've and got
1: imaginary friends talking to you in your head so you're a bit schizo type thing. So, <laughs> so yeah and that was how um yeah that was how it all really started but you yeah, know i wouldn't it's taken me it's given me so many opportunities and um yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be without it now. And I, I, not so much anymore because I think after Red Dust did so well, there's a really huge um, expectation. I was
0: going to ask about this because yeah. you know you come out the gates, you win these awards, and you get the contract, and boom, there you go. Mm. And Now you've got to back it up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was interesting because I didn't really know what I was doing. Again, no formal training. You know, I, I said about this writing course that I was doing. Well, I never finished it because mm. by the time I'd done three modules, I had the contract for Alan and one. I was farming. I was looking after two children with disabilities. I was trying to write a book. And my mother-in-law had been diagnosed with leukemia. And it took a, uh, it was still a couple of years before I had to start caring for her. But I had all this other stuff going on. So I wasn't... Um, I didn't really quite know how to, how to go about, um, to writing Blue Skies. You know, that was, I, I got really stuck with that. And yeah. I think the fear of the expectation also paralysed me a little bit. So I would go back and say now that I don't know that Blue Skies is my best book, but it's still sold astronomically. Yes. So, you know, let's, let's run with that. That works. Let's go with that.
0: <laughs> let's go with that. Um, so, how? Tell me how you. So you've yeah. obviously done twelve books there. Mm. Um, how do you approach writing a book? What What does the process? I don't have one. Like? <laughs> I don't have one. No, it just I, I,
1: I'm I really fly by the seat of my pants with everything. So, like, I'll have yeah. some vague little grey idea. Mm. I'll hear, you know, I'll hear a conversation, or I'll read a. Um, I'll read something in the newspaper or hear a, a um, story on the radio. Um, and this is classic. So when I wrote Silver Clouds, Barry Nichols, who does the drive program for the ABC, he had done, run a story on um, some rings that had been found next to a lake or something up um, north. And I can't even remember the story now. It's just So there's two rings. And I got to thinking, well, hang on. What if those rings had engravings on the inside of them from way back in the 1800s or late 90 1990s? Um, what if, um, there was camels involved? What if, you know, <laughs> sort of like, yeah, 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 because, you know, you automatically yeah, yeah. hear about rings next to a lake and you think camels, you know? Like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we, I, he asked, Barry asked, for readers to uh to list for listeners to writing with the first two paragraphs of what a book would be like with these rings anyway when he did the interview with me to promote the book i said to him do you remember this story and he said yeah i do and i said well this isn't the first two paragraphs this is the whole book on those rings oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know those little things i just picked my interest and, and so that it's the what yeah it's the what if question so you know like so the the Afghan camels. That's how I came up with the idea about camels. You know, yeah. like um, carding wool um, from the Nullarbor. You know, when they were you know early nineteen hundreds type times. So yeah, that was that's sort of how it happens. And then you ask all these questions: what if, what if, what if? And by the time you've answered all of them, you actually have a book. Right. Yeah. And then you have a big edit to do because it's usually fairly so do you, revolting.
0: Do you continue to ask yourself these questions while you're writing? Yeah. Or do you sort of ask all these questions, write them down, and go? All right, I'll try to answer them while I'm writing. Or...
1: No, I, and see, a, a lot of the no, I just, I just, I keep, I, I, I don't even really know what I do. I, I think <laughs> I ask, I think I ask the questions, and then I go, okay, so I've got the beginning, the middle, and the end, and now I've got to colour it in. So a lot of the time, when I sit down to write, I never know what I'm going to write until yeah. I write it. And sometimes I go back and I read about what I've written, and I go. Where the hell did that come from? I can't imagine It like you you're it. Yeah, or it's bizarre. So anyway, it, it works for me. Mm. But in doing all of that too, I often find that I write myself into a corner, especially when I'm writing the crime side of things. So if um, I get forty thousand words in, and I go, righto, well, actually, Flair, you've completely stuffed this up because you've written yourself into here, here, and here. How are you planning to get out of that? Yes. Um, So I ring up my friend Dave, he's a detective up here in Perth. He used to, um, be in charge of the stock squad. And I've known, he's helped me ever since Red Dust was first, um, written. Yeah. And I say to him, okay, this is what I've done. How have I stuffed it up? And how am I going to get out of it? So he comes, this, 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 and this. So he gives you the real
0: life logical, this is how we would approach this.
1: Yeah. And this is how we, this is how we investigate and, all That sort of stuff, so yeah, no, it's really helpful. I actually had drinks with him last night, and we've come up with about another four storylines just sitting there. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> so, like, four, so glasses, of, book
0: 16 yeah, yeah,
1: four <laughs> glasses of wine and four beers later, and you just never know what you're going to write about. Exactly.
0: <laughs> do you sit there with a the notepad while you do these creative oh, things? Oh, no, I
1: go, Oh, yeah, Dave, no worries, I'm going to remember all of this, and then I get home and I go, Crap, I've forgotten half of that. But anyway, okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, what does what does um. What does the average day look like for you? Do you sort of take take your school, come back, and then write, I'm now writing between this time and this time or, no or
1: No, again, does I'm about uh,
0: free forming as well. Yeah,
1: it's all it's all free. <laughs> free. Free love and peace and all the rest of it. I'm not very good at sticking to um routines. So you know, I get up, always um check my emails first thing, do what I need to do with that and then um I'll um, sit down at 9 o'clock and go, yep, I'm going to write. And then I'll go, oh, look at what's happened on Facebook or oh. <laughs> look at what's happened here. And then I get distracted for at least an hour and then a friend will turn up and want to have coffee and then I'll get to the end of the day and go, what the fuck have I done today? Nothing. Yeah. Um, anyway, then you, as you get to the end of, as your deadline gets closer, you just can't do that. Yes. So that's when you've got to sit down and that's when I'll do stupid hours. Like I'll do, you know, 15 or 18 hours in one hit. Um, and my hands get... I've actually got um, some problems with my hands and my nerves because I have done so much riding in such a short space of time. Yeah. So I can do two or three of those days and then I'm, I am can't anymore. So I need about three or four days to give them a break.
0: Right. So, yeah. There's a physical challenge to this as Yeah,
1: well. it's funny. You would never think that. You mm. would never think that, but the... The nerve that comes in from my shoulder and down in my arm, and my right arm in particular, is um, is damaged. So that sort of does does hold me up a little bit at times. Mm. Go, the physio likes me because I turn up at least twice a week going, here, you want to strap me again? Sorry. Yeah.
0: There you go. Um, is there is there any... When you write the story, are you writing it for yourself or is there an... Is there sort of an impact that you want to have with your stories?
1: Yeah, um, it's funny because what I do is I'm in a really privileged position where you know um, I've got the ear of people that are outside of rural Australia, and I can take our stories to wherever those other people are reading in their sitting room or in the city or, or wherever. And what I like to do without you know preaching at people and banging people over the head i like to highlight some of the issues that we do have in rural australia yeah. so yeah, you know, things like rural depression, domestic violence, um, you know, stock stealing is, is a big challenge for us. Um, you know, binge drinking and drugs in country mm. areas. I'm not saying they're not bad in the city, but they are pretty atrocious in our country towns. So if I can bring them to the highlight and put them into a story and make it all very realistic, then that's what I do, I do like to do. But, you know, I'm also very much a crime writer. Um, rather than you know, because this genre that I write in is known as rural romance. I tend to really push against that tag. I, I like the um, I like the crime side of things. I don't I don't li- I don't want to be known as a romance writer. So um, you yeah, know, to push against those boundaries, but bring keep everything realistic and bring all of the um, issues that we're having to into the book. I think um, sort of gives a, a whole. Different feel, like an authenticity type feel about it all, yeah. As well, mm.
0: and and you you raise those issues. That they're, they're things that you actually witness mm. yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you live in a country town long enough, you know yeah. what the problems are, and it, there is ever there's there's all new problems coming through as well. I mean, we could talk about live export. I probably won't because you know it's controversial, but. Um, at this, at this particular point, I really would like to um, put into a book somewhere along the line about live export because until uh, farmers have a responsibility to educate people, um, and you know, animals and, and farming are how we make our money. Mm-hmm. And if we're not good farmers and we're not sustainable and um, you know, we treat our animals badly, we're not going to make any money. So how does what, what we are sometimes accused of is just so far from the truth it's not funny. Um, so, yeah, you know, again, that's something else that I, I like to sort of talk about a little bit. I, this live export thing that's just come up recently, you know, I, I don't think that anyone's going to be happy until it's stopped but until, um, until people can understand that that's going to affect six percent of our WA farmers... Um, and give us another option. If, if, if you don't want us to do live export, fine, but give us another option so we don't lose our markets and we don't lo- lose our livelihoods because it, it'll be you guys that donate. Yes. That'll be the problem. <laughs> yeah,
0: and often we don't, you know, we see, a, we see a blunt end of things, but then we don't see the impact yeah. coming all the way back. Yeah. Um, mm. You also do, if you go outside of the writing, um, you also do quite a lot of work you mentioned before about... Um, domestic violence and stuff, can you want yep. to
1: tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, so um, I started a not-for-profit organisation, so last year I applied for the Rural Women's Award, um, which is through AgriFutures, and uh, we had to have a project, so the, the, the winner would take get a $10,000 bursary um, to put towards their project, and my project was um, to start a website that was a directory for all the country towns within WA that collated all the services for domestic violence and just had them in one spot because, at the moment, there is. Um, so, in, if you Google something like domestic violence help in Esperance, it takes ten clicks or ten different web pages to get anywhere near help, and yep. you, it mightn't be the help that you're looking for. Mm. So, what I wanted to do was bring all of the all of the services into this one web page. So, I've done that. Um, it launched. I did a soft launch uh, about six weeks ago, and on the 8th of June, we've got Lisa Harvey coming down to actually launch the project. She's our patron. Mm-hmm. And what I need to do now, with Esperance being the pilot program, is to now go into all the other region, the bigger regional towns, and then we'll come back and do all the smaller towns as well. So yeah. the aim is by the end of this year to have all the WA online.
0: So um, it's one stop shop, this yep. is where you go.
1: Yep. Um, and then next year, we're going to start focusing on nationwide. Um, so it's really, really important to, if you've had the worst three hours of your life, you have got, you haven't, haven't got 10 clips, and especially in regional um, WA where there is a substandard internet connection. Mm. So you, you just don't have that time. You need to go to a website, find out what's, find, and find what you're looking for. there on to Google. Then yeah, they're on the spot. So that's what we're aiming to do with Breaking the Silence. And and my my thought is within time, once it's all been built up, we're going to find places that haven't got any services at all because that's just the way of Mm -hmm. rural Australia. And I would like to then put councillors especially trained counsellors into these areas that don't have anything like I sort of half like to model it on the McGrath Foundation and there is nothing like this in Australia at the moment for domestic violence
0: mm. and, and it's a t- personal to you isn't it
1: yeah I mean I, I left my marriage four years ago um and I had had um 20 years of um more so verbal abuse than anything else and it affected me quite a lot um it affected my son greatly um uh, and we're back on track now, but well, mostly. But there's always, I just feel that we have a responsibility now to be able to help everybody else that's mm. um, within that, that might well be experiencing that type of thing. And there's so many different types. It doesn't just have to be physical. And that's my whole point. And that's why it's called breaking the silence is because um, the other types of domestic violence, whether it's financial or emotional or manipulation or whatever, they actually leave really um, deep bruises on your soul, and nobody can see them. They, they can see the bruises that's mm. where someone's hit you, but they can't see what's inside, and that's where you sort of get really, um, where, there, where there are lots of problems. Mm. So, yeah. And
0: certainly by remaining silent, um, I had um, a few weeks back, Liam Rui, who, who did the big Hacker for Life on Anzac Day, and he's, his quest is for male depression and anxiety and suicide, and his mm. thing with silence kills and the fact that we don't talk. Mm. And, and I imagine also being in, in, in a rural community, it's very close, people don't want to talk about stuff, mm. people don't know what's, whether this is just the norm or not.
1: And that, that's the interesting thing, I think, about um, the the other side of domestic violence where You know, what you accept at the beginning of a relationship is not what you accept 20 years later because it sneaks in. It's a little bit like a river coming down after a rain. It just trickles along and trickles Mm. along and trickles along and then suddenly suddenly you realise that you're actually accepting stuff you never would have. Yes. Um, And you make excuses for them. And I can say that I didn't know that my situation was a domestic violence situation until I went to a counsellor and said, I cannot live like this anymore. You've got to give me some skills to be able to keep my family together. Yeah, and she said, "I don't think so." Like, I think it's time to go. Yeah, um, and th- that still took me a very long time to do it. But you know, once you actually recognise it, um, then it's. Um, and if people are inside of those relationships, they can't see it, and they're not yeah. going to see it until they are ready.
0: Yeah, because it's very easy from the outsider looking in, and going, "Why well, don't you just? This is this yep. is all screwed. Why don't you just leave? Yep. This is wrong." and and you know even those close around you can tell you You're like no 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 no
1: and look so exactly the same situation i had my best friend tell me two or three times look, either don't talk to me about this anymore or leave like just you know you cannot continue Do something. on yeah um and you know she probably told me that 3 3 years before i left so yeah. you know it still took me a long time to get my head around where i needed to be yeah. and, and you know that doesn't mean that um that my ex is, is a bad person either. You know, like he's still, um, I, I, it's taken me some time, but I can actually talk to him now um, quite civilly and, you know, do what we need to do with the kids and, and all that sort of stuff. But it has taken me a long time to be able to do that.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Is there, I think there's something interesting about being in a isolated community and being able to talk... To people is do you feel that we've got a long way to go in that front? And small- I'm not just talking about I'm just talking about situations where it's not right. Mm. I'm also talking about you know, talking to people and, and sharing ideas and thoughts and concerns and fears and anxieties yeah. helps us to grow as yeah. well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the trouble is with small country towns is that people are a little afraid to talk about it because um, they don't, you know, they're if you've got a group of women together, all their husbands might be down the pub on a Friday night yeah. and they'll all be talking and one of the girls There's goes... two
0: mirrored groups. Yeah,
1: and you, if you go down and the girls suddenly say to one of the husbands, oh, you wouldn't believe what Sally told me the other day about Mick. Mm. then And then Sally's husband goes to Mick and goes, what, what are you doing? And he'll go, oh, okay, hang on, let me give you a bit more of a tune-up. You know, like you don't want those... It's the lack of being anonymous in small country towns that is um, mm. is a bit of a problem um, and I we have to not only do we have to talk about it a lot more breaking the silence is a band-aid it's mm. not going to fix the problem what we need to do is be getting into the schools and talking to the young kids and saying you know this is not appropriate um, and then raising those kids with those with those ethics and the ethos mm. that that anything you know that is remotely to do with you know, yeah, you know, pulling pigtails. on oh, that's a bad example, but anyway, yeah. you know, you know it what starts I mean. With <laughs> yeah, but but again, there's also there's also it can go a little bit far if you know what I mean. There are there are things that even with my background that I'm happy to accept because I know people are pulling the piss out of me rather than you, meaning what they're doing maliciously. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, and there are certainly people that like to act the victims that mm. don't, that that aren't that aren't victims either. So it's it's just such a minefield to try and navigate. But at the moment, breaking the silence is just aimed at people that need help, getting help, and within time, let's put some counselors into areas that need them and then let's take it through to the schools, talk to the kids and put some programs in place then. And yeah. let's get hold of the women and the and the men and the kids that have experiences and have problems with them their own self esteem now and put some programs in place for them to lift them up, give them their confidence back because the self confidence that gets eroded away it's, yeah. it, it's so hard to try and get that back. A little di- bit,
0: by a little bit by a little bit. And little I'm really
1: bit. different to what I was four years ago, and I'm very lucky that I've had the success with my books because if I hadn't, I couldn't tell you where I would be.
0: Mm.
1: I would be very different to what I am.
0: Mm. Mm. What have you um, learned about yourself on this journey, <laughs> through the books, through the
1: um, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to say that I'm stronger than what I think I am, but... Um, maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't, I'm not sure. I, I never, I just take each day as it comes and I do what I need to do. I don't necessarily think that I've learnt. I suppose I have, but I couldn't articulate what it is. I just do what I've got to do every day and if I see an opportunity, I take it. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. That's just what I do.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, It's interesting, you know, right from handed the manuscript too, it's just like if you work hard I'll do this and this will happen Do it, and not overly think about it yeah
1: I mean you've got to work hard no, nothing ever came to anybody in life for free yeah. so you have to be able to work hard and you have to have a good work ethic that's something I try and bang into my 16, uh, 18 year old daughter now which she goes yeah mum whatever <laughs> yeah. but you know if you don't have a work ethic well then you can't expect to achieve
0: <laughs> yeah so where, where do you see Fleur over the next three to five years
1: Oh, well, that's a bit hard. But well, I've just told you I take everything just day at a time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I, I've just signed another two-book contract with Alan and Unwin, so I guess I'll be writing books. Yep. Um, I would like to see that Breaking the Silence has grown. Um, you know, exponentially to have have all of the country towns from WA listed on the site um, and have started to take it nationwide. And I'm putting things in progress for that too, you know, like I'm speaking with people from the McGrath Foundation and and so forth. Um, I would like to see myself on um, some agricultural boards and have some influence there with um, our agricultural industry. You know, I think that... Yeah. Like I said, farmers have responsibilities to educate people about our ways, and I would yes. like to be involved in all of that because uh, yeah, that's what I love. You know, I started farming; that's how I started, like my career, and that's what I love. So, you know, I think I've got um, some really good background with that.
0: Mm. 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 What um, What do you do to keep yourself grounded? would you did to I just have get kids. Heads,
1: just I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you're never going to get a big head when you've got kids yeah <laughs> um, but I, i'm very much a bush person and very yeah. much an agricultural person so i tend to go camping a lot um, i tend to go to the beach i sit underneath a tree and just look at that look at the stars you yeah, know that's um, I'm pretty basic.
0: Which <laughs> doesn't have to be more difficult than that, does it?
1: No, that's, um, just as long as i got my dog and, um, and I've got a bit of space, I'm, I'm pretty good most of the time. I, yeah. I get, I do feel, so when I first moved into Esperance, I felt very fenced in and it took me a little while to get, um, to, I, I bought five acres on the outskirts and once I did that, I was a lot more, a lot more grounded than what I had been, um, I do tend to get a bit stressy. I try not to, but I do get a bit stressy when I've got a huge deadline looming and all these other things coming up. Um, And last year was a a really full-on year for me, so I think I was away every month, and the longest I strung together at home was six weeks. Right. Um, So I was travelling, speaking at rural women's days or wherever I was needed. But then in January uh, or December, I prolapsed a disc and I had an operator has spinal surgery and I had um, four weeks in bed where I just couldn't move and I had no choice but to lie there and do nothing and, mm. I was, and that was so hard because yeah. I don't like doing that, you know, I've always got things I want to be doing and the thing was the painkillers and stuff that I was on really much with my head and it took me, so I literally could do nothing to do with business and that took some getting my head around yes, and getting used to that. I didn't like that at all.
0: Yes, yeah, almost like a force. Mm. Yeah, and
1: situation. really I'm only just coming good from that, you know, mm. like four months later. It's crazy. So mm. anyway, I won't be doing that again. I'm, I've got plans. I'm getting busy again. You're getting busy again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, if, um, if you could go back to um, meet the Fleur that was coming to Western Australia many, many years ago to do her prac here and give her a piece of advice, what would that be?
1: Probably to believe in in myself a little bit more. I've always suffered from self-confidence issues anyway, and I still do. Um, But that would be my one piece of advice, is just to believe in in yourself a little bit more. At the end of the day, I would change nothing in my life because um, what I have been through has taken me to where I am now. Yes. And I, I am the better version of myself than what I ever could have imagined that I could be. So, yeah, all the things that I want to do, all the things that I want to achieve, has only come about because of what I've been through. So I'm not, I wouldn't change anything. That's just the way it is.
0: Superb. <laughs> and, um, and finally, do you have any advice for anyone out there who's, um, what is it? There's supposed to be a book in everybody i read once um, obviously there's more in you <laughs> there's a lot um, of people
1: that tell me that <laughs> yeah but there's a
0: book in there but if somebody out there who's who's aspiring to get a book out of themselves whatever that might be what, what sort of advice would you give them
1: rachel treasure told me once that the only thing that it, that writing needed was bum glue and that was to sit down was what, bum, what? Glue. bum glue bum glue <laughs> so sit down and do it don't yeah. procrastinate just sit down and do it and it doesn't matter if it's um, if it's not very good, because you have all the time in the world to redraft it and edit it, you need to read lots and lots. That's, because um, if you don't read, then you don't refresh yourself. You don't, um, uh, you don't, and you need to read outside of what you like to read because that just sort of broadens your mind and, and all that sort of stuff. But so I, you really do need to read, but at the end of the day, you can't edit a blank page. I don't know who said that, but that's not my quote. Somebody said that. Um, and, if you haven't got it there, you can't do anything with it. So sit down, write it. You've got nothing to lose. And you might just be lucky enough to have, you know, what happened to me. There's a few of us that have had my story in the last little while that have been picked up by um, by, by um, pitch days like Friday pitch. Uh, and we can go on and, and make impact. So, yeah, just have a go. You've got nothing to lose.
0: Super super flirt it's been absolutely fascinating talking <laughs> to you today thank you it's uh it's it, yeah just the insight into writing books and how you your journey there as well as listening to breaking the silence and 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 getting an insight into uh rural communities you know in the in seven and a half years that i've lived in western australia i most of it's been spent in metropolitan Perth. i get out a lot more with other things that i do but um yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating to get a bit more of an insight to that. Oh. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having it's me. been awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank
0: you.